I'll never forget this one time where, where I live, we live right next to a U-Haul parking lot. So a lot of times, like people just miss our building and they go to the U-Haul and they call us. We're like, hey, do you live in a U-Haul? I'm like, no, I don't live in a U-Haul. We're next door. So there's a fence that divides the U-Haul and us. All you got to do to get to our building is walk around the fence. I'm talking, you know, maybe, you know, 30 yards. Yeah. Like it is a simple walk. Yeah, yeah. So one time I come to the door. I wasn't wearing any shoes or else I would have met the person around the fence. So I'm not wearing any shoes. The guy sees me and he just starts chucking my food over the fence. So it was sushi too. So he's just like, catch. And I'm like, what? Did he just say catch? Like I'm going long for some... <laughs> for some maki rolls right now? Like what's going on? So he throws it while the bag hits the fence. Oh, it God. falls. Oh, then he dropped the pop, the pop exploded. And then he like, when I tried to like ask him what was going on, he had, I guess his son in the car. His son gets out of the car and he's like getting confrontational with me. I'm like, okay, this is taking a very weird turn. Ah, the convenience of delivery. That's my friend Matt Basili. He's a former ad guy turned celebrity chef, and he has a lot of experience with delivery apps like Uber Eats and Skip the Dish. A lot of people, including myself, have gotten used to ordering everything from a quick roti for the office to post-workout chicken wings right to our beds. And if we're lucky, that midnight pad thai we ordered is still hot and right side up when it gets to us 90 minutes later. Call it fed on arrival. There was a time, really not so long ago, when getting takeout right to your door was rare. Well, unless, of course, you wanted one of two things. Pizza or Chinese food. And now, some industry analysts are predicting the death of the home-cooked meal altogether. In a recent interview, chief executive of Naspers, Bob Van Dake, an investor in apps like Delivery Hero, said... 150 years ago, people made their own clothes. I'm fairly convinced that 20 years from now, we will mostly not make our own food. There's a whole range of recent innovations that are changing the way we eat and cook. And on-demand delivery, that's just the beginning. From high-scale meal kits that offer a paint-by-numbers culinary experience, to curated grocery pickup and delivery services run by big-box supermarkets. And companies like Uber Eats aren't just transforming the restaurant. They've spawned a new arm of the food industry called dark kitchens, industrial kitchen operations geared solely to delivery. And as more companies compete to satisfy our 24-7 appetite for convenience, the food establishment, from boutique restaurants to major grocery retailers, is bending over backwards to keep up. So we may be closer than we think to a future in which cooking becomes quaint. Oh, and the new food establishment that's paving the way to the land of milk and honey? Well, they don't make food. And increasingly, neither do I. I mean, I think I spend more time watching people cook on TV than I do cook in my own kitchen. Okay, guys, we need to speed up. Move your butts. Move your butts, everybody. Hey, everyone. I'm Claire. We are in the B.A. Test Kitchen today. The winner of the Great British Bake Off is for the eighth time can i have one scallops is this the beginning of the end for the home-cooked meal 
And beyond our own kitchens, what is the rise of even faster food doing to the cooks at our favorite restaurants or the farmers we pass on the side of the highway? I mean, is all this convenience actually making our lives better or, or just quicker? We're going from table to kitchen to cyclist to store to farm to table to find out. We don't have time for a full course meal, but don't worry. I've curated a tasting menu I trust will be to your liking. I'm your host, Ron Tite, and this is The Coop. time, some of us, well, we have had this romantic idea that meals come from moms. My wife never panics. She just takes Swanson TV turkey dinners from the freezing... Casa di Mama frozen pizza from Dr. Edgar, just like Mama used to make. Breakfast in this house? In the morning, I can use all the help I can get. That's why I love Nutella. Mother's best oyster sauce. Mother knows best. And as much as things have changed, there's still a very real pressure to keep up in the kitchen. You may think you're too busy to cook dinner, but think of how much time you spend rabbit-holing on the internet, Facebook, Pinterest, Home cooking Instagram. is in free fall. Rates of home cooking have fallen by half since the mid-60s. Why are we eating so many meals on the run or in the car or in front of the television? I mean, talk about low priority, right? The biggest problem with the home is that used to be the heart of passing on food culture, what made our society. That ain't happening anymore. Some chefs and foodies have made a career of chastising the state of home cooking today and the dominoes effect, excuse me, the domino effect that your family's choices are having on the health and well-being of all civilization. Look, I don't know about you, but I grew up during the height of manufactured foods. We ate sandwiches with bleach white bread and craft singles. And don't even get me started on how creative my mom got with cheese whiz. So no, fancy, healthy, home-cooked meals were not the norm at my house. The idea that all of our parents' cooking was so good, let alone nutritious, is definitely warped. This combo deal of nostalgia and morality seems to be what's fueling new services like ready-to-cook meal kits that sell themselves as shortcuts to the perfect family dinner. So, where did this expectation come from? And how has it continued to impact and inspire the food tech we're seeing today? I spoke with Seneca Elliott and Jocelyn Brenton, two sociology professors who, along with their colleague, Professor Sarah Bowen, studied how women and mothers got food on the table. They're the authors of Pressure Cooker, why home cooking won't solve our problems and what we can do about it. The sanctity of the nightly family dinner has effectively been marketed to us. But where did this standard come from? Well, Jocelyn says the narrative starts to take shape about 150 years ago. 
due to some economic shifts that were that were happening in the 1800s, you know, these shifts prompted men to seek work outside the home and the home became a woman's sphere, right, while her husband went off to work every day. And many um, people saw this arrangement as logical. Uh, the idea being that women are just natural born caregivers and uh, really good at feeding and nurturing others and men are natural born providers. So cooking was not just a practical matter. It was associated with motherly qualities and motherly love. And we see this image right through the, through, um, the 1950s and still today in television commercials and shows and ads that reinforce this idea that good mothers cook for their families. Well, look, this standard wasn't ever possible for most families. Out of economic necessity, poor women and women of color have worked in other people's homes. Now, today, we see low-income women and a lot of women of color working in the food industry, serving others. Um, and so many families were never able to achieve this ideal. And yet it remains this somewhat universalistic image of all women and all grandmothers. And that's a fiction. So the fantasy was kept alive for some thanks to the undervalued labor of many. The three of them spoke with over 150 women and hung out with a dozen families as they went about their daily lives. According to Jocelyn, every single mother they spoke to showed signs of the same spoon-fed lectures. If only individual parents would care more about food, if only they would prioritize, Um, if only they would, instead of buying a bag of chips and a bottle of soda, if only they would choose the apple. And so it makes it seem like um, our health and the way we eat is completely within the control of every individual. And that's not the full story. The more complete story, they say, involves the unpleasant aroma of larger social problems, like income inequality and racism, that most foodies and celebrity chefs seem, well, less interested in talking about. And companies like Blue Apron and HelloFresh are catering right to this pressure many are feeling to return to the kitchen. Meal kits have risen in popularity alongside delivery apps, offering everyone from single 20-somethings to big families customizable multi-meal food packages. And they send over all the measured out ingredients and step-by-step instructions to follow, eliminating some of the most daunting aspects of home cooking. Sadly, we're still waiting on the startup solution for dirty dishes. For some, signing up for meal kits right to their doors has replaced the once common weekly trip to the grocery store. In response, grocery chains across North America, from Amazon's Whole Foods to Loblaws and Sobeys, are building their own competitive food delivery and pickup options. No time to shop or meal plan, these companies are taking care of it. So this kind of solves the problem, right? Seneca's not so sure. These kinds of services up the ante uh, because they are an option. So why aren't we using those? If we're having trouble cooking, then why not just get your groceries delivered to your door? Why not just um, subscribe to one of the meal service kits that are out there? Why not make this um, easier for yourself, buy yourself out of um, some of these difficulties? The more help you have, the higher the stakes. Hence, why aren't we having steak tonight? Jocelyn? I have friends who use um, the meal kits that you order, but they still talk about them apologetically. Like they're not like they're taking a shortcut as mothers and somehow that's still not acceptable. So as long as, you know, I've had people I know who are solidly middle class or or make pretty decent money say, yeah, it's like that's 
I can't order those all the time. And it's still women who are doing the ordering, planning that, and doing the cooking. Low-income families could benefit the most from services like these, but they're not the demographic being catered to. From Chef's Plate to HelloFresh, meal kits cost between $9 and $13 per serving. And if you're serving a family of four, that's anywhere from $250 to $360 a week. So without addressing the moral panic connected to what we eat and who's making it, well, Jocelyn says these new services aren't changing much when it comes to our relationship with food. These days, me and the other dads may be helping out more when it comes to dinner time, but I don't think we know the distress that Jocelyn and Seneca are talking about. Look, I'll be honest. My wife, Christy, and I, you know, we're more of a pre-made, order-it-in kind of family. Cooking for us, it's a choice. And when we've both had a long day at work, or even if we just don't feel like it, we can always afford to outsource the cooking. Look, we may not have a personal chef at home, but at the touch of a button, I can summon a steak tartare to my door within the hour. Doesn't feel extravagant, but it kind of is. Whether it's our kitchen or an industrial kitchen, what's outsourced may be different, but it's still outsourced. And the question is, what's the cost of these regal food services? And I don't mean the sticker price. I mean the human cost. but feels like overnight, the food delivery scene has become overpopulated. And if you live in a big city, it's hard to miss. Every second cyclist that whizzes by has a huge bag of hot food strapped to their back en route to their next destination. And if a local restaurant we love isn't on the apps, well, we start scrolling for a new favorite sushi spot. The relationship between us diners and restaurants has been disrupted, and many chefs and restaurateurs feel it. Matt Basili, who you heard at the top of the show, he's one of them. His former restaurant, Lisa Marie, was one of the first Uber Eats chose to partner with. The idea was, they're like, you're going to do one menu item during lunch. It's going to be available for a three-hour window. Yeah. Basically, you're going to make these in batches of four or five, these these containers, these plates. So every 20 minutes, a new driver's gonna come and pick up like five or six bags, bring it to their car, plug these bags into their lighter, and then within a 10 block radius, as they get orders, they're just gonna yeah. drop them all off and stuff like that. And Matt was outright skeptical. And I was like, this sounds crazy. Like there's no way this is gonna work. Like I'm starting to think about things like food safety, and quality of the product. But I was like, okay, well, let's try it. Like how how bad could this be, right? Yeah. And at first, it was a gold mine. The orders were pouring in. And then all of a sudden, we started seeing people tweeting back at me like, just ordered this off thing, tried this Uber Eats thing, and what a disappointment. Uh, food was cold, it was like the bacon was not crispy, this and that. So now you're looking at that same piece of technology that was helping you and now it's being used against you. Hey, if you want to deliver an omelet, you're probably going to spoil a few delivery bags, right? Fortunately for Matt, when he flagged quality issues, the Uber Eats team was really responsive. They made some changes to their packaging and Matt made some changes to his takeout menu. But as Uber Eats set up shop in more cities, along with competing services like Fedora and Skip the Dishes, things became a lot less convenient. 
and you started to see the process get diluted, right? I think they had stretched themselves way too thin, way too quickly. They didn't have the, the personnel or the infrastructure to actually execute. And at that point we stopped doing it. And then they just completely changed what Uber Eats was altogether at that point. They were like, okay, we're going to be a delivery service. This like hyper extension of uh, instant gratification. I want food. I'm going to get it right now. Eventually, Matt signed up with their competitor, Skip the Dishes. But regardless of the company, Matt says there were still headaches. Extra inventory costs, distracting in kitchen iPads needed for each delivery app, and backed up prep stations. And it started to affect the in-house dining experience. I think that's when I really start to have a problem with it. Um, it's like if you're a customer has decided to put some shoes on and venture out and come to your establishment, they should always get priority over everything because they made the journey, yeah. you know, and what's their reward? Having their food now be compromised because of, of this delivery app. And if customers didn't recognize the lapse in service, well, they were definitely noticing the new regulars. Drivers coming in and out, they're always look very lost. Like they're coming with this big black bag. You think maybe there's a head in there. Like what's going yeah, yeah. on? Like, you know, it's just, it, it's, a, it's a delivery service now. Now this is just one restaurateur's experience, but it does raise a lot of questions. To really dig into this, I needed to talk to someone with a more holistic view on the entire industry. You started as a cook. That was the first foray into this That was one field. of my first jobs, yeah. And why, why did you walk away? I wasn't good at it. This is Corey Mintz. He's a food reporter who writes regularly for the Toronto Star and Globe and Mail. Lucky for us, he's very good at that job. Corey's reporting has had him following Uber Eats and other services since the beginning. And in the early days, just like Matt, he saw something promising. I wrote a story about it. I went to the head office of Uber Eats in Toronto and I, I sat in on a session where they had a restaurateur come in with, I think, five or 10 dishes that yeah. they were trying to decide what works best. And they, everyone did a taste test and scored it yeah. for you know how well its crispiness held up, how well the flavor translated it. But they were very thorough in this. And it wasn't just their thorough approach. It was the outcome. It offered something of great value to the consumer, obviously, like it's not expensive. And to the restaurant, it's increasing sales, but putting the labor at a time of day where their kitchen and kitchen staff are not busy, you know? It didn't cut in on their time or revenue for the rest of the day. It was, right. it was win, win, win. Now, we already know from that that it wasn't long before the model changed, going from mass lunch deliveries to the personalized system many of us use today. Order anything from anywhere at any time. Here's the thing. The pool of takeaway businesses has gotten a lot bigger. And as the choices have gone up, so have our expectations. The result? Now, kitchens are always on call. But surely the money they were making made all these challenges worth it, right? Nope. As the apps grew, so did their commission fees. I mean, the commission rates they charge, which range anywhere from like typically 25 to 35% of yeah. sales, which is a lot. The after-tax profit yeah. in the restaurant industry in Canada for the last four years has been 4.2%. Okay. Right? Yep. So if that's the average, then asking 30% of sales yeah. is, is really a highway robbery. Right. The restaurant business has always been a sink or swim market with notoriously tight margins. Between the power landlords have to set and raise rents, minimum wage increases, and rising food costs, there's already a lot taking a chunk out of profits. Now, add these third parties' 25 to 35% commission rates to your overhead. 
While it's a great marketing opportunity for some, it's no surprise that more restaurants are struggling to stay afloat, mom and pops especially. They started partnering with all these restaurants, and I think it does work for some people, but I started hearing a lot of complaints, like what caused them to change from, uh, I guess, an offer that was like great uh, bait to us, you know? Like, who wouldn't want, like, more options for lunch delivered right to my door? Whether or not the service went from great to bait, what I know is we're all hooked. Uber Eats kickstarted a new disruptive model that's forced incumbents to adapt. I mean, this is textbook takeover. And look, as Corey points out, it's not just Uber shaping the game now. They've ushered in a market with dozens of competitors for us to choose from, including Berlin-based Fudora and Winnipeg-born Skip the Dishes. And this industry continues to grow. In the United States alone, online food delivery sales are expected to total $19 billion this year, according to Statista. Which raises the question, where's all that money going? All the apps work differently, but here's a quick breakdown based on the averages. The most straightforward fee is the delivery fee. While prices vary across the apps, the average consumer usually ends up paying anywhere from five to 15 bucks. On top of that base fee, restaurants are trying to pass the commission on to you, the consumer. And they do that one of two ways. Some delivery companies let restaurants mark up their menu prices, which can add another two to six bucks to that same burger combo you'd get in-house. But some discourage raising prices in hopes of creating a consistent consumer experience. The flip side, well, some restaurants resort to shrinking meal portions instead. Corey estimates some delivery customers are getting anywhere from 10 to 30% less food than they would if they dined in at the same restaurant. But here's what's not adding up for me. If restaurants are bending over backwards just to be able to afford these partnerships, why aren't more of them walking away? Corey? Because they feel squeezed out because these services have come for their customers yeah. and they've taken them and they're ransoming them back. But there are restaurants who do it as a lost leader just because they know that if they're not the fried chicken sandwich people are ordering on this delivery app, then someone else is going to be. Look, ransom is one hell of a business model. But to be fair, right, obviously the delivery companies, well, they see things a little bit differently. Last November, Uber Eats Canada told the CBC that the restaurants they work with, quote, regularly see a significant increase in order volume and sales, which they can easily execute on without building the infrastructure required to build a delivery business. Uber Eats makes delivery a variable cost as opposed to major investments in personnel and vehicle fleets, end quote. And while Corey says many restaurateurs have found it challenging to turn a profit using the services, a recent study by Technomic, which reports on the trends in the food industry, may challenge the widespread claim that delivery apps cannibalize existing sales. In 2018, they found that about 60% of the operators they surveyed had generated incremental sales from delivery partnerships, while just 11% felt that it hurt their dine-in business. Still, I guess anecdotal experiences like Matt's suggest that there may not be a sustainable delivery strategy for non-franchised businesses. When I look at it from the restaurateur's perspective, it seems like the apps offered an opportunity to expand their customer base and to take care of the headache of delivery, and with it, took their most valued relationship. In other words, the apps have grown by making themselves middlemen. But here's the thing. 
If more people want ready-to-eat meals delivered right to their home, why not just do that? The same people that have tied the hands of the food establishment have also helped spawn a new arm of it. The dark kitchens are coming and they're optimized for delivery. Companies are buying and renting out large industrial kitchens to virtual restaurants and brick and mortar businesses who've run out of space to fulfill delivery orders. Big players like Uber Eats, DoorDash, and others are funding and partnering with these operations, also known as cloud or ghost kitchens. And of course, former CEO of Uber, Travis Kalanick, is behind one of the industry's biggest players, LA-based cloud kitchens. Tim Bradshaw of the Financial Times says dark kitchens are, quote, a combination of advanced food preparation, underused real estate, and algorithm-driven optimization to lower overheads and increase output. Mmm, delicious. Dark kitchens are being tested all over the world. There's a wave of startups that are determined to create virtual food brands as recognizable as Subway and McDonald's. And while that'll take some time, it's likely you've already ordered from one of them. You probably just didn't notice. Many see cloud kitchens as an exciting, cost-effective alternative to the traditional restaurant. With no front-of-house staff or high downtown rents to pay, businesses can focus solely on making great food. Right? But not everyone is so swept up. Matt Newberg warns in his recent documentary, Faster Food, that cloud kitchens may not be the industry's cloud nine. High-end restaurants and large corporations that back restaurants, restaurant groups, will thrive and models of that sustained delivery, it will eradicate the mom and pop, the middle mid-market restaurant. I'd, I want to be hopeful. I don't know how to preserve that. These independent mom and pop restaurants account for a third of our entire dining landscape, employing over three million workers. Where will a lot of these workers find jobs? Look, steel mills used to have a lot of workers in them. So where are these guys gonna find jobs? Somewhere else? I mean, you got to wonder if we'll start to see a pipeline of out-of-work restaurant cooks signing up to deliver or freelance in local dark kitchens. I mean, maybe that's already the case. Look, regardless of industry, the recent wave of tech disruptors tend to have two words in common. Independent contractors. Or, spelled differently, gig economy. From Uber Eats to Fedora to Skip the Dishes, couriers, whether they're working full-time or only delivery once every few weeks, are all classified as independent contractors, not employees. This is pretty standard in the gig economy, and it means that our delivery people don't get access to safety nets like paid sick days or employment insurance. And a lot of them are not happy about it. In 2018, CBC Marketplace did an investigation into the delivery apps. Across the country where it delivers, Uber Eats tells us it does not pay into workers' compensation for its couriers, saying in the provinces where Uber Eats is available, independent contractors may choose to register themselves for optional coverage with their province's workers' compensation authority. Skip the Dishes pays for coverage in some provinces and not others, saying they're following provincial regulations. Fedora tells us where it delivers in the country, it pays for compensation coverage for couriers. CBC approached several apps, including Uber Eats and Skip the Dishes, to ask about their pricing structures and labor conditions. 
Fudora was the only company that agreed to sit down for an interview. Here is Fudora's managing director, David Albert. We feel that it's important that the worker has protection in the event that they're injured on the job. And in speaking to the regulating bodies, it seemed like it was something that we were able to do and, and actually supposed to be doing. The CBC Marketplace team also found that whether or not couriers and drivers get coverage has a lot to do with their company's legal designation. After questioning Ontario's Workers' Compensation Board, the WSIB, we learned that Uber Eats is classified as a telephone answering service. That's like a call center. So that means those on the road are not covered but Fedora is classified as courier operations. So their couriers are covered. Skip the dishes status is still pending. Here in Ontario, Uber Eats faces an appeal to a class action lawsuit filed by couriers and drivers. And in 2018, Skip the Dishes had a lawsuit filed against them by a Manitoba-based driver also seeking class action status. And here in Toronto, Fedora's couriers have been trying to unionize for months. If they're successful, it could set a precedent for workers in the gig economy. As much as I love some of these disruptors and the conveniences they've provided, the tense relationship many have with their frontline workers can't be overlooked. But let's make one thing clear. The restaurant business wasn't exactly a haven for workers before the apps came along either. Here's Corey. You know, the last figure I had was cooks in this country make on average $15 an hour and servers make on average $30 an hour, you know, after tips. So one class of employees is earning double what the other amount earns and they're expected to work together. And so like you've got a, a very like at war type of family. And delivery companies seem to be widening food services pay gap. See, the loftiest addition to the industry hasn't been the machines and the robots cooking and selling us food. It's the people on bikes and in cars delivering our soggy fries. This, to me, is the crux of this whole shift. For a long time, the food service industry has operated this way, with big pay gaps and grueling hours, but the labor behind it was usually invisible, hidden in the kitchen. But with delivery... Well, there's no hiding that. And beyond just couriers, vulnerable food workers make up a long list, including small-scale farmers and migrant farm workers. Corey even wrote a piece on this invisible part of the industry for TVO, Ontario's public broadcaster. The byline? Workers are exploited from farm to table. So why aren't we doing anything about it? So, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that, for the most part, the people who actually touch our food are getting the smallest piece of the pie. And now, from table to farm, what else am I not seeing? It's been hard to miss the aesthetic and structural shifts to food service and retail. But trends further up the food supply chain, on the other hand, have been harder to track. How have the farmers, processors, and distributors that get food into stores and restaurants kept up? To get a better sense of how the move towards personalized made-to-order eating is affecting those outside the city, I reached out to the food professor. My name is uh, Sylvain Charlebois, uh, and for those who can't pronounce my name, I'm often referred to as the food professor. Uh, I'm a professor in food distribution and policy, and I've been uh, studying uh, food systems for about 20 years now. 
Look, it's easy to lose the thread when it comes to our food, especially when less of us buy, let alone grow, actual produce. But before it's in our takeout boxes and on our plates, food comes from... Uh, okay, I don't really know anymore, actually. And I could, I guess, take you through Sylvan's 101. But what's striking to me is that even people within the food system don't know what's going on elsewhere in the chain. When you look at... Um new phenomena like meal kidding or the grocerant, the blurring lines between service and retailing. I'm just not sure farmers are, are capitalizing on these opportunities as much as they should. I mean, in 20, 30 years from now, I could easily see a farmer delivering by drone meal kits to different places in, in different cities. Why not? The technology already exists. So that connection can happen. And of course, a lot of urbanites would love to get meals prepared by farmers out there uh, and being served these meals uh, in, in just a couple of hours. But if farmers want to be around long enough to benefit from all this slick new tech, they're going to have to build partnerships capable of competing with global producers. I mean, I guess you can just farm peas alone, but I don't know if there's a market for premium pea delivery. Sylvain offers a few avenues of solutions. For one, consumers want more specialized products catered to their needs, like Beyond Meat Burgers. Farmers could also lobby for policy change that supports innovation across food groups or team up to get in, in on direct-to-consumer ventures like the meal kit market. But Sylvain said there's a pretty big barrier when it comes to working together across products. The, the reality in supply chain management is that everyone hates each other. You have farmers, you have processors, you have distributors, and they don't trust each other. So to align strategies to respond to what consumers actually are looking for is very difficult. And so, of course, the entire supply chain will need to change. And until that changes, they're not going to keep up with consumer expectations, let alone international competition. Consumers don't necessarily look at beef in isolation. It's about dieting. It's about a lifestyle more so than just looking at one product. And unless there's a shift, Sylvain thinks the inaction is going to challenge the foundation of Canada's entire food system. For farmers and processors, where we, the public, spend our food dollars, that makes a big difference. Here's how the American food market shakes out for farmers. On average, um, for every product sold in a grocery store, 22%, so 22 cents of every dollar spent in a grocery store will go back to the farmer on average. Of course, it does vary from one section to another, but it's about 22%. In food service, it's 4%. So four cents out of every dollar. And of course, you have to add, for example, the expensive bottle of wine, the tip that you that you give to the server. I mean, all of these things don't go back to the farmer. So it's a significant difference. Think about it this way. You'd pay a lot more for a suit than you would for the fabric it's made out of. Who's buying fabric? At the beginning of 2019, Statistics Canada reported that 54% of Canadians eat out once a week or more. And when asked why, 40% of them gave one of the three reasons. Ordering in and dining out is convenient, they have no time to cook, or 
they don't like or know how to cook. So we're not buying groceries nearly as much as our parents. And some farmers are on top of consumer trends. I mean, there are already specialized products cropping up in grocery stores and restaurants. In fact, you're probably already eating them. But according to Sylvain, 83% of them are manufactured in other countries. The market is growing. It's just that Canada's farmers and producers aren't in on it. For us city folk, the cynical question that all this brings up is, well, how's this going to affect my life? Sylvain puts it this way. The only people who really need to worry about the fate of farmers, well, it's just the type of people who care about jobs or food security or wealth creation. You know, niche stuff. If most of the food that we actually eat in Canada is manufactured elsewhere or produced elsewhere, what is likely to happen to all Canadians or most Canadians would be that your uh, food products or meals that you buy every single day would fluctuate in price dramatically. So you shouldn't be surprised to see uh, your food increase by 5-10% uh, every quarter, for example. The more you allow um, your value chain to be controlled by other companies outside your country, the more you become vulnerable to macroeconomic shifts like the currency, for example. Let's say, for example, you enjoy uh, maple leaf products manufactured out of Indiana. And if, if the dollar drops by 10 cents, don't be surprised as an urbanite, uh, if your hamburger uh, costs a dollar more the next day, I mean, it, there's a trickle down effect uh, as a result of all this. If there's no wealth creation in the country, uh, wealth is often created in processing, then uh, your food systems become less efficient. So not caring where our food comes from and who's growing it may cost all of us, but it doesn't need to be a threat. Sylvain thinks that these shifts in demand, while challenging now, can ultimately be very good for consumers and producers alike. Where I'm coming from is that food diversity pays. I mean, all of these things are good for the economy. They're good for the food industry. Uh, we just need to embrace these opportunities as much as possible. But what's been happening over the last uh, few decades, there's a lot of disconnects that do happen. And, and of course, in order to focus on innovation, uh, you kind of have to adopt a systemic point of view on, on food in general. Look, I'm not an agricultural economist. I'm assuming you're not either. So what's our role? I think it, it boils down to getting engaged. Uh, and uh, so as, as an urbanite, you just want to diversify your portfolio. It's, it's not to go to the same place over and over again, but to try different things. And, and then start asking questions about you know, where the food is coming from. Visit a farm if you have time, if you have a car, to, you know, to, to get a better appreciation for what's actually ha is happening. Look, I think what Sylvain's proposing is awesome, but most of us already have enough on our plate. Now we need to figure out the entire food system too? Come on. If I'm being honest, I see myself as an eater. Look, I do want the system to be better and more humane. The more I learn about how some food service innovations are working, I don't know, it just feels a little bleak. My courier's not getting paid enough. The extravagant packaging waste that keeps my food warm is 
I don't know, floating off the coast of Fiji somewhere. Despite pre-ordering the groceries, mothers everywhere are stressed about what's for dinner tonight. So no, it's not all convenient. Other than perhaps the future of kitchenless homes and well, we're still waiting to see what Amazon and Uber plan to do with our food. The draw of these apps and automated services isn't just their efficiency. It's also the possibility that they could let us ignore each other in peace. They distance us from the reality that our meal had a life before the estimated delivery time. And we're happy to let them. But it gets a whole lot more complicated when you can see the back end. And until we can sort through the kinks, both on and off the apps, these innovations are bittersweet. This episode of The Coup was written by Ali Graham and Chris Connolly. Ali Graham produced it, and it was mixed by Chandra Bullockon. Original theme music is by the great Jim Guthrie, and additional music is by the Blue Dot Sessions and Artless. The Coup is made by Church and State Podcasts for the Rogers Frequency Podcast Network. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and if you know anyone who might like it, let them know. And as a special treat, your sketch group Women Fully Clothed. Here's their song, What's for Dinner? I'm your host and executive producer, Ron Tank. See you next time on The Coop. Try to forget about the other kids and how they make us sweat. But try not to forget or you lose your edge. Don't lose your Down in the kitchen to cook Taking out and studying Each cookbook And wondering what I'll make today Good Lord, show me the way Oh, mothers, let's go down Let's go down Come on down Oh, mothers, let's go down down in the kitchen to cook. I think I'll make shrimp tonight. Johnny has shellfish allergies. Tuna casserole. We don't have peas. Prime rib. Cost too damn much. Two. Matthew's food can't touch. What's for dinner tonight? What's for dinner tonight? I said, what should I make for dinner tonight? She, she said, what should I make for dinner sorry, tonight? I'm sorry, I'm actually asking you if somebody could just tell me what to make for dinner tonight. Forget it, we'll have hamburgers again. Bobby only eats food that's white. Pork chops. Just had it on Saturday night. Fettuccine Alfredo. The cream has spoiled. Chicken fingers. Hydrogenated oil. I'm sure it's tough to build a sovereign government in Iraq. Iraq. Or keep a country safe from a terrorist, terrorist attack. attack. World leaders, I don't demean your blood, your sweat, your tears. 
But try coming up with dinner every night for 18 years. Yeah, try coming up with dinner every night for 18 years. Will the cycle be unbroken? By and by, Lord, by and by. Is there another hungry family in the sky, Lord, in the sky? Oh, will the cycle? Will the 